Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, ecological and political crises that we face today. And they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is system scientist George Mobis. George is a computer scientist by training uh, who did some fascinating work with AI that he explains at the beginning before heading into the field of system science. He joined me to discuss uh, what research in system science is currently missing, the essential nature of the global problematique, how him and some of his colleagues are attempting to create a vast global model to understand the poly crisis, how economy, human organization, energy, climate all fit together to drive this very unstable uh, phase of human history. He also goes into a lot of detail about the development of the brain, has some very interesting theories as to how the systems that we've created have impacted our human behavior and our capacity for what he calls wisdom. And of course, from all of that, we end up in a conversation about societal collapse. So there's lots to learn in this one. I really hope you all enjoy it. If you do, please share it with your network. If you love the episode, support the podcast at planetcritical.com. And to those of you already supporting this podcast and my work, thank you so much. Well, George, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Rachel. Good to be here. Could you give a little walkthrough of um, your fields of research uh, and your academic career, and then we'll go from there? Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's kind of a long story, so I'll try to shorten it up as much as possible. I started out in biology uh, many, many years ago. got my uh, undergraduate degree at the University of Washington, Seattle. And um, over the years, I jumped around a little bit. There weren't many jobs for uh, zoologists when I graduated. <laughs> so uh, I ended up in the business world and, um, and, uh, and then basically got myself a, an MBA. <laughs> and that's where I was first, um, had my first uh, real exposure to what I now know as system science. Um, <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, then um, after a number of years of, of doing that, um, I ended up as the CEO of a small company in, near San Diego. Uh, but I found it boring as Dickens. So um, uh, again, long story short, I finally ended up uh, at the University of North Texas to get a PhD in uh, computer science. All the while, I was building and building and building my understanding of general system science. And um, there, there are no, there's only one university in the United States that actually has a, a, a true system science program, and it's very limited. Right. Um, Sorry, is that still true today? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, right. and in fact, that program has gotten smaller since. Um, but in any case, I uh, just basically gathered as much information as I could, and uh, I used it. Actually, in my uh, computer science PhD dissertation, um, I developed a, a, a robot, uh, an autonomous agent, that emulated the way a snail brain 
work so that the robot could wander around um, in its uh, environment, which we changed up. We changed the, you know, configuration and it had to learn which kinds of things it should approach and which kinds of things it should avoid. Mm. So uh, the, uh, in, in that process, I, I really did apply a great deal of systems theory to mm -hmm. figuring out how I was going to do this. So it's completely different from standard AI. In standard AI, you know, it's basically pattern recognition. Uh, when, uh, when I say standard AI today, that includes neural networks. But uh, the neural network I built was based on trying to emulate real neurons and not just these, you know, quick and dirty uh, neurons. I, can you explicate that a little further for me? How um, pattern recognition would be different then uh, to programming this systems-based snail brain model? Because to me, right. it seems, you know, if there's an environment and it has to learn where it can go and whatever, why, why would that not be pattern recognition? Uh. Well, pattern recognition is an important part of intelligence, that's for sure. But, uh, and so you have to, you have to go through the process of learning the patterns. Um, but in this case, I integrated all of the control circuitry into the same neurons that were learning the relations, the, the, uh, um, <laughs> yeah, the relations, I'm trying to think that's the right <laughs> word. Um, but in, in any case, it's, it's sort of irrelevant here. Um, so it was really a very, very compact circuit that I developed. And what, what's going on is I'm simulating the way the real neurons, those biological neurons work in terms of adjusting their synaptic, uh, weights, as opposed to the way it's done in a typical artificial neural network where um, they're using what's called supervised learning. They're using a, a, yep, this is the pattern we want you to see. What do you see kind of thing? And then allow that to uh, adjust the uh, weights. Um, so basically, I mean, what I'm saying is I was trying to follow the animal pattern, mm -hmm. <laughs> animal way of uh, doing this. And uh, getting some some additional uh, capabilities. So pattern recognition does not involve reasoning, for example. So people for years have been trying to combine more traditional AI, which is, involves reasoning, with the pattern recognition of, of artificial neural networks. I don't think there's been a whole lot of success doing that. In the meantime, Another group of people have realized that probably if you're going to get brain-like behavior, you're going to have to emulate the brain. So they're mm. doing research on actually doing essentially what I did, but for a human brain. And I look for that to produce some interesting results. Um, why do you think that, and we might be sort of vaguely going off topic already, uh, but why do you think that artificial intelligence went for, or like that field went for the pattern recognition um model rather than the systems model is it because the systems model is much more complex and demands a certain being able to program a certain level of reasoning yeah the um i was in san diego at the time that the um 
backpropagation learning algorithm was first being employed. Uh, and I, I went to a number of uh, uh, seminars uh, given by the people who uh, were presenting or uh, developing that. And I've had many discussions with them. Uh, basically, uh, it came out of, um, out of um, uh, the cognitive science realm. And um, basically, the people who were involved in that, that's, that's what they understood is pattern recognition. And they also understood from previous work on artificial neural systems that um, uh, it had something to do with the um, uh, changing of the synaptic weights between these areas. Now, what, what they did was they have, uh, basically, it's a three-layer. Now, now, with deep learning, it's many more layers. They had three layers of artificial neurons, and each layer from each layer in the input side was connected to all the neurons in the second layer, and all of those neurons were connected to all the neurons in the third layer, the output layer. And um, they would measure the error between the, the pattern that was being presented and, and what it actually was that the neurons output and fed that back to cause the change in the weights of all these others. Now, the brain, animal brains, human brains, <laughs> don't work that way at all. It's not fully connected. Um, and uh, you may have heard that uh, uh, in, in these artificial neural networks that it takes quite a long time to train them. They have to mm -hmm. go a huge training set of patterns to learn to distinguish them for what they are and so forth. Um, whereas an animal like a snail or a human can learn, you know, instantly. Um, so there's, there's just vast differences between the way they, they work and the way they encode information, um, store knowledge and so on and so forth. I don't know. It was pretty successful. The only problem was I've had people say, oh, that's really interesting work. I wish I understood it. <laughs> <laughs> so I did, I did continue doing research uh, in my early uh, professor years. Um, but after a while, you know, like I say, people would, would look at it and say, well, we can do all of that with this, this artificial neural network. It's really easy to program. Um, so I just basically at some point said, well, you know what, let me turn my full attention to system science because yeah. I really, I really see that as being applicable to human organizations, um, you know, to, to, to any system and the earth as a whole, actually. Mm -hmm. and, I, and that's what I've been doing ever since then. Why do you think that system science is such a sort of undersubscribed field? I mean, it's been 50 years since Limits to Growth, which was kind of such an inaugural important piece of system science, especially as it pertained to the climate crisis and the urgency of the situation. Um, the more I learn about it, the more it seems just so fundamental uh, to understand systems and be able to create models around them. And yet it's just not something that we... Uh, hear about very often it's not something that we see you know certainly at the political level <laughs> why do you think that is is it because of the complexity of the field well there is a complexity involvement um 
first off, almost everybody actually has the basis for understanding systemness, the properties of being a system. The thing that it's a bunch of components that are connected together, they operate together, um, and, and they have less of an interaction with the external environment than they have with one another. Um, so that, that, that part's pretty easy. You get into the details, though, and it starts to get really complex. But the other reason is exactly what you mentioned. So you talk about Danella Meadows' um, work, and that, that is based on a modeling method called the uh, uh, systems dynamics modeling, a very specific kind of approach. And um, that actually turns out to be, and, and people specialize in it. They, they, they limit themselves to that aspect alone. Unfortunately, that's only one aspect of total systemness. Right. The, the dynamical properties of the system, how it behaves, that's just one aspect. Structural um, elements have to be taken into consideration. Uh, let's see. Well, th there's quite a number. The, the, every system is organized as a kind of a hierarchy mm -hmm. of systems. So, People began specializing. I had people specializing in cybernetics, for example, especially in management science folks. Um, people specializing in um, uh, complexity uh, and so forth. So each of these areas, which are collectively and integrated uh, aspects of being a system, just sort of, you know, we have a tradition of being specialists, mm. of of focusing in on one area and trying to develop as much as we can about that. Nothing terribly wrong with that, unless in this case, you don't go back and say, how does that fit in with everything else? And that's what people are failing to do. So uh, one of my colleagues and I, Mike Colton, a number of years back, uh, decided to write a, um, it's, I call it a guidebook. It's not actually a textbook. Um, on the uh, uh, principles of system science. So it's uh, it, it basically has chapters for all of these different aspects and shows how they interrelate with one another. Um, and that has gone, that has actually become quite uh, popular. I, uh, every once in a while I check the uh, sales stats and it was released in uh, 2015. Uh, and basically it's still selling, I get, um, more uh, citations <laughs> from that book than in my entire academic career <laughs> for computer science. Um, so it's it's been holding up very well. And then more recently, I just uh, wrote a book myself um, that is called System Science uh, Theory, um, Analysis, Modeling, and Design. So I cover the sort of the four major um, activities, if you will, within the, uh, um, system sciences. And again, I integrate all of these different aspects, uh, to show how they have to go together in order for you to actually fully understand uh, a system. It would, and, uh, sorry, but it would just seem quite ironic that system science, uh, would be yet another field that was siloed into it's different separate parts rather than coming at it from an integral perspective. I think that's a human 
failing, if you will, a human <laughs> part of our human condition. Um, I, I mean, I get people saying, well, I'm glad you wrote the book, but you know, I'm still a cybernetician, right? Mm. I'm still a, a uh, you know, a complexity person. Because mm. uh, in the end, it really is hard to, uh, to to look at all of those, especially simultaneously. You have so, to parse through them. When you analyze the system, you have to literally take it apart and, and see all the parts and take into account, for example, networking. Everything is a network. Um, all systems are networks of components. Some of those components are directly interacting with each other. Others are uh, di more distantly interacting through other components. Uh, but it is a network. And so you have to apply network analysis to the structural aspects of it. Well, uh, structural and dynamical because uh, links will change uh, over time, just, just like the brain, just like a neural network. Mm -hmm. uh, it is capable of uh, uh, adapting and, and uh, even evolving. So when we take the field of system science as it is today, and we uh, apply it to the climate crisis, what are some of the major failings, in your opinion, that are happening within the field? What are the parts that, that we're missing? Or, or what if, are there blind spots? And what effect are they having on the climate conversation? Well, um, yeah, again, this is going to be a more macro view than you might might be thinking about. The climate situation is a result. Mm -hmm. It's it's a symptom of something that's going on much deeper. Namely, as we know, it's because we're pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Well, why are we pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere? It's because you and I need to get in our car and go to the store. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but I, <laughs> I'm not. I don't live near, I just bought an electric bike. So hopefully I'll be changing some of my carbon footprint. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then why is it that we're burning oil, burning, uh, gasoline, uh, or oil products, uh, in order to achieve this. And that turns out to be a matter of we're in a hurry. We want to get places fast. We want to, uh, cook our meals quickly. We want to do a, a variety of things and we want it to be convenient. So these are all things that we just don't often take into account. We know we're responsible. We don't know why necessarily. And people studying climate, um, you know, they, they keep saying you, we've got to stop pumping carbon dioxide into, into the atmosphere. If we don't do that by a certain date, it, game over. Um, why don't people do it? We've all heard that message. We've all heard that, uh, it's, um, this is what's going to be necessary. Yet I, I'm guessing you, but I could be wrong. And so many other people still live comfortable lives. You know, we still have, have tomatoes shipped up from Mexico and in, in the dead of winter. Um, in, in the U.S. here. Um, so we have to address what is it about us that makes us incapable of relinquishing all these comforts and, and so forth. Well, surely that in itself, though, is a systems problem because it's not as simple as just 
stopping pumping carbon dioxide overnight. It's the fact right. that that is part of our economic system and our energy system, and that's having an effect on our ecology. Um, there yep. are multiple levers that need to be pulled at the same time in order to facilitate an energy transition, for exactly. example. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly the point. You can't just look at the climate and say, well, all we need to do is put some big uh, uh, direct air capture machines out there around the world and, and, and uh, we'll solve that problem. But we can continue to go on driving our cars. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it is. That's why I say the whole world is a system. Mm -hmm. uh, the human, human social system is a subsystem of the, the entire world. Mm -hmm. uh, it evolved from that world so i'm just wondering if we can tie this into what you were saying about ai at the beginning um it's really pricked my ears up and i'm wondering um is there a the decision that was kind of taken to focus on pattern recognition because it's perhaps more feasible um is that going to have a limiting effect on what we will be able to ask, you know, artificial intelligence help with in the future? Because I think also one of the techno techno optimist perspectives is that um, we're eventually going to code an AI that is so powerful. We're going to feed in, be able to feed models in and get data and results really, really quickly. Um, and from that, figure out what to do. And yet, if AIs are being programmed sort of without reasoning, as you put it, and I'm sure I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not a computer scientist or a scientist, um, is that going to inhibit uh, what our technological pals could help us with in the future? Well, I never bought into that story. I thought AI <laughs> was a useful tool, and it is a useful tool when you apply it in the right place. But as it stands right now, and, and the the kind of thinking that, that people are doing going into that, they want it to be a technological solution. I mean, we, we, we invent stuff, no question about it. But is that going to be the answer, ultimate answer for us in the end? Now, having delved into how the brain works in you know, pretty deeply, um, it's vastly, vastly more complex than any, uh, you know, deep learning AI that we've got yet. And that's why I say these, there are people, IBM, hmm, pardon me, IBM has a project going. We've got one here in Seattle uh, where, where they literally are trying to emulate what the brain does and how it does it. Uh, because they, they realize it's going to take that kind of approach. Um, they might succeed someday. And as my oldest son likes to say, I, for one, look forward to the day when our um, machine overlords take over and keep us from destroying the rest of the earth. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't think it's going to happen, certainly no time soon. And we may... We may have a civilizational um, collapse that will prevent it from ever happening. Mm. I wonder if people would um, accept directives better from uh, an artificial intelligence than from a human leader, like a politician. Like if, you, if we 
had a, a great big machine that was seen as the most intelligent uh, thing on the planet. And it said, yeah, you really need to stop burning CO2. I wondered then if the message would go through. <laughs> I, I don't know. The, the, the answer is 42. Of course, you know that. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is always 42. <laughs> All right. So we can't look to AI then. Um, what what interesting developments are happening in system science at the moment that you think will be able to better tackle these sort of big existential questions and questions of complexity? Um, well, actually, it's uh, interesting you ask because that's what we're going to be dealing with at our conference in July. Mm -hmm. um, we've been building up by uh, uh, having speakers come in who understand various areas of uh, and sometimes the whole, uh, what's called the global problematique, because it isn't just climate, it isn't mm -hmm. ocean acidification, it isn't sea level rise, it isn't uh, freshwater loss, soil loss. It's all of these things combined, and they're all due to the same underlying force, namely human consumption mm -hmm. and human growth, right? It's, uh, the population growth. So we have to tackle those directly and we have to have um, a giant model if you will of how all those things interact with one another mm -hmm. and we have built i mean the, the, the various sciences has have built up a considerable amount of knowledge how each of the, the dynamics behind each and every one of these things so uh the probably the knowledge is there we just have to figure out how to uh, how to attack it. Um, and uh, I think uh, the International Society for System Science was, is probably a pretty good place to uh, try to organize that. How close are you to creating the giant model? Well, <laughs> I'm not close at all. <laughs> I mean, I've got, I've got a pretty good understanding in my head um, of what all these pieces are and how they would need to be put together, but it's going to take a team of people and uh, some modeling tools to uh, to be able to to do that. I in the new book that I just put out, uh, I do address bits and pieces: the economy, uh, you know, uh, resource uh, depletion, things mm -hmm. things of that nature, to show how they systemically interact. But um, it's not going to be done by one person. Is there a limit to what we're neurologically capable of uh, in terms of dealing with complexity? Individually, uh, almost certainly. Mm -hmm. Collectively, if we can figure out what an ideal social organization looks like for human beings, which brings out the best in them, allows them to uh, gain and use wisdom, and um, and and doesn't bombard them constantly with pressures from jobs or whatever. Um, yes, I think I think a group, uh, uh, not even a, a very large group, of humans could organize to become collectively conscious and collectively able to uh, work on these problems. They do it by sharing. Mm. They share what they understand with others. And, um, uh, 
you know, but we have to overcome some, some fundamental, I don't know, issues with human beings as they are, because you, you can share something and the person receiving it doesn't accept it because they've got their own idea about what they do. They were, yeah. they're anxious to share with you. And so somehow or another, we've got to break down the, uh, the communication barrier. We're also going to be exploring that possibility at the conference as well. We've got a, uh, a former president of the society who's been working on a uh, dialogic mechanism for um, groups to, to work together and, and come to a common understanding. And so uh, hopefully we can, in years to come, put that together and um, see if it works. What's the what's the theory behind that as to why human beings sometimes struggle to listen to each other? <laughs> well, um, for me, it it comes down to this notion of wisdom. Um, several years back, I wrote another book uh, called Sapiens. Uh, it was the application of systems science to understanding uh, human behavior and. Uh, you know, we call ourselves Homo sapiens. Sapiens uh, is Greek for wisdom. Um, so man the wise. I don't think we can look back at, at all of history and watch the development of what we've been doing the last 10,000 years or so and say we've been particularly wise. As, as, as there, there are individuals here and there who, who uh, seem to be able to uh, rise to the occasion, uh, you know, I think of Gandhi or Mandela, um, but the vast majority, I don't think are, um, there. So I would, I would not call us homo sapiens. I would call us homo pseudo sapiens or <laughs> something like that. Um, and in that book, I, I explored the, the brain foundations for uh, I, I allow it to be sapiens because we're clearly we're different from other animals. I mean, we have uh, abstract language and, you know, can invent things, complex uh, tools and so forth. So we're clearly different. We, we passed some kind of a threshold. And um, uh, however, we're not sufficiently different in the sense that we still uh, rely very heavily on what are called the animal spirits or the the limbic system, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and it can override the, the prefrontal cortex here, this area, a uh, patch of, of cortex behind the eyebrows uh, is um, the latest uh, development in brain evolution. Mm -hmm. uh, and it grew quite extensively in size and, and complexity. Um, maybe uh, 500,000 I'm actually forgetting it, 200 to 500,000 years ago. So. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and that seems to be the seat of our capacity to uh, not just reason or, or, or think, control our thinking, but actually to um, integrate with our subconscious capabilities as well as our conscious capabilities. And, um, and, and learn learn, uh, reality. Um, 
And so basically wisdom is just applying what, what you've learned, whether it's conscious application or intuitions that rise from the subconscious. And then we, we latch onto them consciously. So yeah, that's a pretty good idea. Mm. Um, so anyway, the, 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 the gist of the book is that human beings were on that path of evolving more capacity for wisdom. And I suspect, and I argue in the book that, uh, it was the advent of agriculture, which, um, as a, as a means for, um, getting food, getting resources, uh, just changed the, the framework in which we had been evolving for greater wisdom. Um, because the, the emphasis in agriculture is on tactical and logistical problem solving, very local. And so that would not have, that would have changed the selective pressures that were on humans to, um, uh, think more strategically. Um, I, I that's putting in a nutshell, but, but <laughs> basically is that we just didn't evolve sufficient capacity for, for exercising wisdom. And that's, that's where we're stuck. That's very interesting. So our brain was developing, prefrontal cortex was developing, um, that capacity for wisdom was emerging. And then due to how we set up and organize our food systems, uh, with that focus on locality and logistics, what that kind of changed the, the path that we were on previously, which was more abstract wisdom to a more concrete and structured rational relationship to the world? Well, yes, because, uh, you know, as hunter-gatherers in small tribes, um, basically you've got a collective decision-making process, which is self-reinforcing. Mm. Uh, generally, these tribes were, uh, they weren't controlled or managed in the, in the sense we think of now, uh, but the wisdom of the elders was definitely a part of it. And these tribes had to really address the whole world that they could have access to. Yeah. They have to move around, uh, have to have some idea of where they should move. Um, you know, so there, there was a more strategic requirement in their thinking. And when we settled in, into, uh, singular places for the entire season, uh, and, um, uh, began to, to focus on the operations of uh, agriculture and, and, uh, building, uh, structures and, and things of this nature that really put a completely different, um, set of pressures. And so, and so since the vast majority of people remember evolution is based on fitness and fitness is based on your capacity to reproduce yourself. And since the vast majority of people were engaging more and more in these tactical, logistical and operational uh, decision processes, they, um, uh, that's, that's where evolution was going to select for the, the better they got at doing that better off the population was. So, um, a few people still had some strategic, uh, thinking capability. Well, all people have it. It's just not that well developed. Um, but in some people, it was very well developed and, uh, they tended to move toward leadership and so forth. 
Um, so that's the short story. How interesting. But, uh, he captured it very well. Mm, I'm just thinking. So if uh, in hunter-gatherer societies, um, there had to be an awareness of the the bigger picture at all times, um, because people were moving around, the, the, their environment that they had to understand perhaps was like a larger area even than a homestead with a field and a permanent settlement. Um, there had to be an awareness of the different cycles of seasons and where they could get food at different times and, and also that, that process of collaborative decision-making as well. It's so interesting to think that um, then decisions would have become slightly more micro when settling. Um, and I'm thinking even of, I can't remember who I was speaking to, it was a few months ago, but they were saying, you know, even uh, pre-industrial agriculture, just, you know, 500 years ago, they had better long-term thinking than we did because they understood that you have to store grain in order to sow the field the next year or to, you know, feed yourself over winter, for example. And now we just live in such an on-demand society that we don't, we don't have to think long-term really about anything or haven't right. had to in a very long time. And that is why we're sort of fundamentally equipped to deal with a poly crisis like the climate crisis, especially when it is this um, symptom of different events rather than a singular thing like an asteroid hitting the Earth or whatever. Um, so it's just interesting to think how all of those, how our thinking became increasingly micro um, from, as, as per your theory, that one decision to, to settle almost. Um, and the, the siloing of education, the atomization of different fields of study, it's how interesting. Mm, and then what that would have done to our brains. So how do we um, how do we get back to bigger picture thinking? Um, I I can't say for sure that it's going to require uh, any kind of evolutionary process. Um, it, here's the scenario I'm I'm seeing, and it's it's not a it's not a pretty one. I think society is going to collapse. And uh, the survivors will go back to uh, basically hunter-gatherer or very, very, uh, are you familiar with permaculture, the concept of permaculture? Vaguely, but could you explain it for the listeners? Yeah, it's a ba basically it's the application of systems thinking to, um, to whole living. It's, it's a small community-based approach to food, shelter, clothing, and so forth. But but on a um, sustainable and um, self-reliant, shall we say. So it's going back to the tribes of old. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking that because the climate is going to be so hectic that these permaculture communities are not probably not going to be able to stay in one place for, mm. for a multi-year period. And so they're going to have to go back to this uh, idea of moving around and being aware of the larger picture. Um, so if that happens, uh, maybe uh, 10,000 years from now, um, humans will be back in, on track in that, that regard. The other scenario, which is a scary one, a lot of people are going to think is pretty scary, is uh, that we do have now technology for actually doing gene editing. And we also have a mapping of the uh, genetics of 
brain development. So we know exactly which genes, well, we know most, I guess, which genes get turned on during embryology and, and, and you know, development phases that, that cause the prefrontal cortex to grow the way it grows. Um, and if, it, if the hypothesis is right in terms of that's where the, the center of um, advanced human sapiens uh, would be, then it is conceivable. I'm not, I'm not advocating it. I'm just saying it is conceivable that uh, we could uh, literally manufacture some wiser people. Jeez. Yeah, I know. There's a, <laughs> look, we made the decision a long time ago when we put a, a, a pointy rock on the end of a stick uh, that this was going to be our fate. We're going to, we're going to have to figure out how to solve these things um, through some, some sort of machination. I, uh, I, I think my gut is just like, <laughs> we would go the other way in terms of um, the, the powerful class would manufacture slightly stupider people um, in order to, you know, get away with making the kind of decisions that they want and not facing uh, public discourse about it. Yeah. It's like Brave New World. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, see, I personally think that that's, uh, we're heading more towards um, a hugely unequal and stratified society um, where the, you know, the whole concept of like the the one percent and the elites like still very much sort of live in the shadows currently and are protected by our economic systems and our energy systems and are very much dependence as well on how they've kind of created the world. I think rather than a huge collapse that sees people going to sort of live out these tribal um, ways of being, I think we're going to see. Um, massive population decline through climate events and then uh, biosurfdom, essentially. Uh, yeah. Now, well, we, we, what we need to do, what system science does teach us is we need to consider all of these scenarios. Uh, what our model should do is generate a number of scenarios and then we kind of, because that allows us to anticipate various changes that will occur and to recognize them when they occur, and then mm. hopefully be able to mitigate them in, in some way, shape, or form. So, I get it. Uh, like working backwards almost. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, I, I, I said enough. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, I was saying, as you were saying, I was thinking, I was thinking that about the how um, physicists have, have modeled the Big Bang through this idea of going backwards and, and looking back through time, essentially. And would it not be possible to envision different scenarios, exactly as you say, and then work backwards and uh, identify the perhaps sociological trigger points? Although I'm not sure what it would change because we have also the, you know, the planetary boundaries and the warming targets and all this stuff. And we know that we're overshooting and hitting all the trigger points and nothing changes. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that's the unfortunate reality. <laughs> when you said that you, you think that society is going to collapse, you're not the first guest that I've had on this show that says that. Um, why? Why is it going to collapse? Yeah. Well, uh, it's all of the above, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
like you said, uh, there be uh, uh, population effects on uh, uh, from uh, climate, um, sea level rise. All all of those uh, elements of the problem in teak are going to come to play, and our society is so dependent. The Western society, particularly, I mean, the Northern Western societies are so dependent on their being people. I mean, we, what do we talk about in economics? If uh, we, uh, we need more people <laughs> to, to fill the labor market. We don't have yeah. labor. Well, yeah. at some point, that whole thing is going to break down. Yeah. All of that will be forced to go to, uh, uh, you know, self-survival, essentially. Have you read Joe Tainter's book, uh, Collapse of Complex Societies? No, but it is on my reading list. Um, and I've been it's saying cool. that for too long. His, um, his uh, uh, thinking has evolved a little bit from when he wrote that book. Uh, and he's working on a new one, I, I believe. Okay. Um, but basically, he goes into detail how the complexity itself creates more problems. And at some point you simply don't have enough energy. And I'm talking about energy like oil or, or nuclear or whatever. You don't have enough energy to to operate the whole thing. And so it just falls in on itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um but still I think the something that I'm so interested in with with this with this work that I do is that I speak to people all around the world every week and on Twitter every day um, who are actively working on solutions and system solutions, not direct air capture nonsense. Um, and there's there are huge communities around the world of people really uh, trying to achieve something and coming closer and closer to identifying the the, the macro picture and where the the levers are and i think that yes not enough is happening on a global political level and the fundamentals the macro is very much misunderstood by our political leaders etc cetera, etc cetera. but still um it seems to me that there is a network you know almost like a neural network of people attempting and mm. therefore that like the more information that i get the more hopeful i get even though the picture is still pretty bloody bleak. <laughs> um, yep. So, well, I—that's yeah. great to hear. Um, I've I've uh, looked at these permaculture communities all mm -hmm. all over the world. Uh, it started out in Australia, but uh, basically, they have them everywhere now. And it seems to me that these are these are people who are—they're not trying to solve the big problems. They're they're simply taking care of their. Um, their own living by not creating more problems. Mm -hmm. And uh, my guess is those we're looking at the survivors, the people who will actually be able to get through any major um, uh, societal collapse. So I'm not talking about everything collapsing. I'm just talking about the, the standard business as usual economy that, that is uh, working right now, which is, utterly dependent upon um, us burning fossil fuels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even, even if, you, you may already know this, even to put up a single windmill 
right? You're going to generate electricity with a single windmill. Takes more in the form of fossil fuel to, for the concrete, the the um, uh, fiber, uh, what do they call it? The carbon fiber, plastics, whatever they make them out of. Um, so it actually costs, uh, the carbon footprint of a, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but um, uh, the carbon footprint of a single modern windmill is is bigger than if you just simply run a gas um, power plant. Well, maybe not gas, maybe, maybe coal. Anyway, the, the point is, is it's a, a zero-sum game. <laughs> as long as you demand that electricity. Yeah. Cut back yeah. on the electricity, and now you got a solution. Well, this is the thing. There's lots of economic theory being put forward right now, you know, under the umbrella of degrowth about absolute reduction. Absolute reduction in, A, you know, the demands that we put on economy, but also the demands that we put on resources and people. A lot of what you were saying when we went into the wisdom part of this conversation sounded a lot like health, like the health and well-being of human beings and therefore their capacity to have healthful uh, lives and impact on the planet as well. Like This discourse is now coming into the mainstream. The Spanish Minister for um, Consumer Affairs wrote an article in one of their national newspapers about degrowth just a few weeks ago, you know? So... The collapse of business as usual society, I mean, collapse would be dramatic and violent and awful and many, many people would die. But like the pressure on it to transform into something new, that would be fantastic. I mean, I think we're all ready to kiss capitalism goodbye, unless you're a really rich capitalist. <laughs> well, I certainly hope so. I, it, you know, at one time I was a capitalist. Um, I tried to start a, um, tried to start up. Uh, getting venture capital to take my my version of neural networks and neural emulation into some kind of a product, yeah. and um, I was almost successful. Well, I was successful in getting a commitment from venture capital, and then they uh, it was 1986, um, the stock market crash yeah. in the United States. I don't know if you yeah. heard about that or know <laughs> about it. Um, it, it happened the very day we were supposed to sign the contract. Oh, really? And so those, the venture capitalists um, basically went out of business. Yeah. So, but that saved me. That saved me. It got mm -hmm. me on it, another path that eventually I got to the point of realizing that, uh, yeah, that this this just can't go on forever. And I hope you're right. I, um, I don't, I talk to probably a more limited number of people uh, than you do. Um, and, and we're in something of an echo chamber in the, in the society. Uh, but uh, there is a recognition there that capitalism is, is the way it's, it's done now um, just can't succeed. Absolutely. So, the one concern I have about the discourse around capitalism is identifying it as purely a system in and of itself that is the problem rather than a manifestation of some problematic part of human behavior. Uh, because if we don't take into account a lot of the things that you were saying, um, you know, sort of our lack of wisdom over the past 10,000 years, 
rather than recognizing, you know, it was a mix of a new economic system and then access to this incredible energy source, which spurred, you know, globalization, our capacity to, to just expand and grow the way that we did. That didn't right. just happen because those systems presented themselves. They happen also because of the choices that human beings are making to develop right. and cement those systems. So I obviously would like capitalism to go away. Um, but I think we also have to be very aware of what would be coming to replace it as well. And how would like the shadow of capitalism appear in a global socialism, for example? Um, you know, we already have examples of that in former socialist revolutions. Yeah, I, um, there's, I've made a big deal out of saying I don't like isms anymore. <laughs> uh, that because we have we have this tendency to dichotomize and say capitalism or socialism, mm. and that's driving a lot of politics in the United States right now in nasty, nasty ways. Um, why are there isms? Because people have beliefs about yeah. how things should be, how things work. And if we could actually just realize that we're talking about systems and uh, systems of systems and, mm -hmm. and so forth, and, and that each of the component parts, like these permaculture communities I'm talking about, are really worth looking into because they, they offer a promise for a way to live happily, healthily, um, uh, and, and, and they can communicate with one another, but they're basically, um, it's a, it's not an ism. There's no, they can organize however they want. They don't, if they want to share equally among themselves, they're free to do that. And they, and all the ones that I'm familiar with, they do in fact do that because mm -hmm. there's a shared sense of purpose, a shared sense of, uh, you know, what work needs to be done and, uh, yeah, it's a, it. It can be a, a a pretty complete society in into itself, um, in uh, many ways. I mean, it includes education of the young. Um, are you familiar with the Montessori schools? Uh vaguely, yes. Well, that's another um, area you might want to explore at some time. Uh, they're based on uh, some of the best psychology that was known uh, mid, early to mid uh, uh, 20th century, um, where students learn at their own pace. There aren't yeah. grades in the yeah. ordinary, and younger students can learn from older students. Um, and they have various uh, ways of, of teaching subject matter that uh, are more holistic. Well, my youngest son was um, went uh, attended a um, uh, kindergarten kind of uh, Montessori that was on a farm, and um, it was it was more like a permaculture farm, but it was on, it was just a couple that that ran it. Uh, so they raised their own food. Uh, they had chickens and sheep. And I can't remember what all, but basically, it was a very simple lifestyle. Those kids learn to sew, to cook, to do a whole variety of very practical kinds of things, but they understood the connections. Where did the where did the wool come from to uh, uh, you know make uh, uh, threads mm -hmm. and yarn and stuff like that? Well, they could see how 
these things were cycling around. It was right there in front of him. Mm. And I think he got a better education from that experience than he ever would have gotten from, um, and he continued on in Montessori um, after he graduated from that. But I thought, I think that was a very seminal kind of experience. So I, my contention is um, raise children in a permaculture environment where people are practicing wisely and they will become very uh, educated in the practical skills. And then when they're, say, uh, early teens, you can start working them on the, the more academic parts of things, like uh, take them from arithmetic to, to higher forms of math and so on. Uh, they'll be better prepared for learning. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Uh, my final question for you is, who would you like to platform? Yeah, uh, well, uh, my uh, informal colleague, Tyler Volk, has written a number of books. He's a, a, a planetary scientist, so to speak. He did a lot of work on the carbon cycle. Okay. Uh, but he, his most recent book is called uh, Quarks to Cultures where he identifies the evolutionary process by which uh, from the Big Bang to, and he's really big in deep history. Ah. Very intelligent guy, super intelligent guy. Probably one of the few guys I, I in my humble judgment, which I consider wise. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he, he would be, uh, I think he would be a dynamite person to interview. Wonderful. I would love Can to I speak with you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time today, George. It was brilliant speaking with you. Well, thank you. And uh, I enjoyed it as well. If you want to learn more about George's work or read today's interview transcript, I've put links to both over on planetcritical.com, where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked the episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. Supporting the podcast also directly supports my climate corruption investigations, so a huge thank you to the Planet Critical community who make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.